Hey everyone, this is The Syllabus, and I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, Director of Open Learning at American Jewish University. The Syllabus, as you know, is a podcast about politics on campus, and it's co-produced by AJU and Inside Higher Ed. Today, we're talking with Robert Vitalis. He's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, and he joined us to talk about the Palestinian Culture Conference that made so much news back in September angering donors even before the Hamas attacks of October 7th led to events that angered so many donors. I knew I would get a great interview with Robert Vitalis, but I got an even better one than I expected. Because it turns out, as you'll hear, that Vitalis, who is generally depicted in the press as a left-wing guy, a defender of the Palestinian Culture Conference, someone who has antagonized conservative donors, is in fact also antagonizing liberals and leftists on campus. He finds himself caught in the middle. According to him, he's just devoted to free speech at all costs. According to people on the right, he's, you know, in the tank for for lefties. According to people on the left, he has been overly critical of Palestinian resistance or overly critical of Hamas. And he finds himself with no friends. And as you'll hear, we break news on this podcast. As you'll hear, he seems to be headed for retirement. Here's my interview with Robert Vitalis. Our guest today is Robert Bob Vitalis, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the name of an old-fashioned hair tonic, right? It, it, it sure is, which is sometimes we say Vitalis for that reason, but no one knows that unless you're over 70 years old at this point. It, I mean, amazing that here I am at 49 years old, and I know that Vitalis is a hair tonic that I think my step-grandfather used there you go. in his day. Bob Vitalis, or sometimes Vitalis is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's here to talk with us today about campus politics, but in particular, an episode that happened a couple months ago. This was before uh, the attacks in Gaza and the subsequent war. There was a conference on Palestinian literature at the University of Pennsylvania, which upset some faculty and students and some donors. And those donors are now among the people who are calling for various uh, funding changes at Penn to put it euphemistically. I'm telling the story second or third hand and probably not as well as Bob could. So I want you to tell it. But first, I gave a brief biography of you. Could you flesh it out? What do you do? Who are you? What's your story? Well, I'm a political scientist. I've been a practicing academic since 1987. I describe myself as a recovering Middle East expert, but you know, the rest of the world sees me as someone who's a specialist in Middle East politics. Got it. Okay, tell us what this conference was, and then we're going to talk about some of the controversy around it. But first of all, and I don't remember if you were an organizer of it or just a participant in it, or but you were on the ground, Penn hosted it, and you're quoted everywhere talking about it. So what was it? Well, I was on the ground, but had nothing to do with organizing the conference or I never participated in it. Basically, I'm a father of a 12-year-old and you can extrapolate maybe that most of your time is taken up with a 12-year-old chauffeuring them all over the place. So I did not have the weekend to go to Palestine Rights. It's Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. Yes, very clever. That's right. Palestine Rights as a literary festival. And the idea, I think, again, this is secondhand because I'm not a member, though I know some of the founders. The general idea was a, a celebration or a kind of even an exposure of the public or the world to a Palestinian culture in the guise of Palestinian writers, poets, playwrights, uh, filmmakers now, and so forth. And I think they had 
one in-person conference when they founded the organization back maybe four years ago or so or five. And then whatever plans they had for follow-ups were scuttled by COVID. And I'm not, I can't even tell you whether there were Zoom meetings or Zoom versions of it. But I did learn that up to about nine months ago that Palestine Rights' next in-person event was going to be held at the University of Pennsylvania. And I learned that because some colleague of mine contacted me and said, hey, I'm one of the organizers. Can you help me with this? There were 120, I believe, invited speakers. I've seen a few of recorded videos, a poetry reading. My colleague, who's one of the organizers of the event, is married to a Palestinian poet who, I can't tell you why this is true, writes only in English. And so he was reading his poems in English, and she was translating them in that session. There were sessions for kids and so forth. So that was like the basic logic of this event. And this was last September. It was last September and it had been planned for about, again, I said about nine months prior to this. And all the kind of craziness broke out a week before the event was to actually take place. The craziness being letters from some alumni and others and people on campus asking that the event be canceled or that the president distance herself from it. The president issued a letter I would say distancing herself and the university from it while defending the people's rights to have the conference. How would you describe in a nutshell what the craziness was, to use your word? The basic charge was this was an event replete with innumerable numbers of anti-Semitic speakers, and it was an anti-Israel event, and Penn should be ashamed for organizing this event. It wasn't just letters to President McGill and angry phone calls and rights statements in the public. There was one of those electronic billboards parked at Penn all the week before the conference with President McGill's face plastered on them and saying, number one anti-Semite. I've never seen anything like this at the University of Pennsylvania or anywhere else. And remember, this was before the Gaza war where now this has become standard. So, so I, we don't have so much time because my promise to our listeners is this is going to be a brief weekly podcast. So we're going to inevitably oversimplify and people are going to write to me, I hope, at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu and tell me what I got wrong and all of that and what we oversimplified, which is inevitable. But let me cut through the chase and say, I'm looking at some articles that describe some of the instances or alleged instances of anti-Semitism among some of the participants. Do you think that there's any truth in the charge that some of the people who invited to participate had histories of anti-Semitism? Every article that has since been produced states two things over and over again. Okay. The fact of anti-Semitism at the event and only names two people. Those two people are named over and over again. Roger Waters the leader of Pink Floyd, and Mark Lamont Hill, a professor of education and media. He taught for years at Temple. He's now teaching at the CUNY Graduate Center. You cannot find any other names, nor will you find any statement that anyone said at the event itself. No dispute there. One of the other names that I'm seeing, and you can just tell me, did he not speak there, was Rafat Alarir. I've not seen that name ever before, so I, and I cannot speak to that. So Camera, which is obviously a partisan organization, but very often right, had him tweeting out that basically comparing Jews to Nazis and calling people the, mo the most despicable filth. I mean, it's pretty bad stuff, I have to say, but I'm, you haven't seen that one, so I'm not I have it. not, and it, it would be great. I mean, because I'm collecting these, if you can send that to me, that would be great, okay? I'm looking at, I'm looking at tweets that say, are most Jews evil? Of course they are. They're either killing Palestinians reporting killers or silent about it. 
So there's my problem. I'm a 68-year-old guy who ventured onto Facebook only recently. You should never venture to Facebook. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Rather than invite you to get in a back and forth or tit for tat about who said what in the past or what said whom in the mm -hmm. past, let me ask you your thoughts on this. If it's the case, let's say hypothetically, that one or two of the participants, and I'm aware Mark Lamont Hill's history of comments, had said things that really were anti-Semitic. The claim of a lot of Jews and allies and supporters of Jews and their allies would be that if you, would, if you had a history of saying something that was anti-queer or anti-trans or anti-black and you were coming to a conference, the whole campus would be in an uproar. But if you have a history of saying something that's a little bit anti-Jewish, it's seen as okay. It's seen as part of the resistance. Do you think that's true? Yes, and that's really unfortunate. And the great mistake, uh, the woke left have sh shot themselves in the foot. Okay, and I sent you a statement from an ex-Pen uh, president from 1997 who said, we don't shut down talks, even talks that we might not be happy with. We want to hear those speakers, but more important, we think those are going to be undermined by more people speaking and that in that you would have rational debate. Now, I, and now what's happened at Penn and many other places in, in the ensuing decades is we've had this controversy where a controversial faculty member at a law school is having these sanctions imposed on her because she's alleged to be a racist and has made allegedly racist remarks and is a conservative. And if you can tar one set, I told pro-Palestinian folks, if you're attacking the Amy Wax and calling for sanctions, you understand that the same thing can happen to you because you are also going to be heard as expressing hate speech. The problem, I believe, is that folks don't see these things as equivalencies, right? So every pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrator or pro-Palestinian solidarity person believes themselves to have the truth that they un that that their framework is the is true and unquestioned, that there's some kind of Jewish supremacy or settler colonialism, and the Palestinians are simply resisting. So what is the problem? And the problem is that other, other folks dispute these ways of, one, framing the problem, and two, that what we're seeing right now since the war began is basically struggles like fight what Obama called sloganeering as opposed to trying to understand and carefully parse and nuance what we're hearing. So yes, I would say it is true. And you say that as somebody who's, whose history, I would say, is of sympathy with the Palestinians. A absolutely. Palestinians on the pretty far left of these questions. I'm, I'm moving closer. I'm moving farther and farther right every minute. I was accused of being a white supremacist and an Islamophobe in the past few weeks by one side in, in these questions, as also being accused of being an anti-Semite by other folks. And this is generally because you're a kind of radical free speech guy. I'm becoming a liberal is the real problem. And I wouldn't have said that at all. I've always tried to challenge the left at moments like these to be more careful and to be able to substantiate their claims and to understand things in a more complex fashion than a, a sloganeering will allow. And I've got myself into a lot of trouble this time around. Friends, The Syllabus, the podcast you're listening to, is a production of American Jewish University and InsideHigherEd.com. Here at AJU's Office of Open Learning, we're offering a lot of cool online classes and lectures, so check us out at aju.edu open. And our partner, Inside Higher Ed, offers so many good articles, interviews, opinion pieces, stories about the whole world of higher education. You got to check out Inside Higher Ed at InsideHigherEd.com.
Two questions. The penultimate question, how do you get yourself into a lot of trouble this time around? And I should say we're talking on November 7th. So who knows how current events have overtaken us by the time this is aired. But how have you gotten yourself into a lot of trouble at Penn? Well, from the pro-left, pro-Palestinian side, I've insisted over and over again that folks have to wrestle with the fact that Hamas committed these atrocities. And that's the starting point of analysis. And you could build in all the context you want, and you could talk about Nakba, or you can talk about the takeover of the Gaza Strip, however you want to tell that story. In the same way that Susan Sontag, after 9-11, made the claim, look, we need to understand the history, yes, both so we can understand why this is happening and preventing it from happening again. And I'm all for that. Context is fine. But then you come back to the fact that Hamas committed these atrocities. And I've yet to meet a lefty who would sit down and explain why they think that happened and what was the strategy of the Hamas fighters or the military leaders. And isn't it credible that precisely what we're seeing going on, the massive retaliation by Israel, being one of the things that it wished for, in that it, it intended for Palestinian civilians to die. And however they rationalize it to themselves. By saying that over and over again, I've been accused of, of blood libels against the Palestinian people. Because some folks have said this, believe it or not, it's just like 9-11, that massacre never happened. People on the left who don't believe that Hamas did this. Yes, absolutely. I've seen folks cite unsourced Mondo Weiss stories and, and argue that, so if IDF killed some six or seven or eight or 11 of the civil, civilians as they were fighting to retake those spaces, they've leaped from there to say a massacre never took place. And people like Naomi Klein and Adam Schatz on the London Review of Books, both who have come out in public claiming we have to start with the massacre, they were charged with a blood libel against the Palestinian people because no massacre ever take, took place. That makes the left sound like a totally insane group of people. Some uh, of them. I, I, and, I I know history, and I know you have a history of feeling that the right is a fairly questionable group of people we understand how you're in trouble with the left. What's your problem with the right at this point as you analyze campus oh, politics? Okay, so this is a pretty good one. In When I still stayed on Facebook and trying to engage the left with the facts on the ground, I asked, in a, and I want to say, uh, let me say something else. Uh, because I'm not a sophisticated social media user, I had a private Facebook page. That means only my friends can engage in it. It's not public. And I posted a picture, I posted a picture of, of Hamas, Hamas banner. And I asked, how come I'm not seeing Hamas banners on anybody's feed? Why aren't they talking about Hamas? And then I pushed again on the same question with, this, with a, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the Al-Qasim brigades. And, in, and I, that's when I was being accused of being an Islamophobe and a white supremacist and advocating genocide against poor Palestinian people. I was shocked by this, but I posted one last post, a cloth badge for a piece of clothing uh, from the Al-Qasim Brigade, the militant wing of the of Hamas. And I wrote on this little post, easy way to call my Facebook friends list, and this looks good on your clothes. So ironic, right? Sarcastic, directed to the left. That was taken down by Facebook administrators within two hours. But three days later, it started circulating nationally. And since that moment, I've been fielding 
questions, my department's getting emails, et cetera, is, do you know Vitalis is a supporter of Hamas? Because you were capping off an anti-left yes. argument with yes. this ironic- You can go check the yeah, Canary and- Mission page because it also lists me as a supporter of BDS, and I've been an outspoken critic of BDS for years and years. So those guys, are they're clueless about at least some of the people they're writing about, but I tend not to worry about it. Say so now we're in a war, and now I'm getting crazy phone calls and emails to my- department and so forth. You're telling the left, focus on the atrocities of Hamas. You're telling the right, focus on, I mean, you have a history of saying, focus on the conditions of the Palestinians. Right now, nobody likes you, except maybe your 12-year-old. <laughs> well, my friends and, and my my family and other, liberal, other liberals out there, and actually the many Israelis who have written to me saying, thank you. And, I can't and believe you're me, doing this. Let me give, and and now I want to get to the final question, which is actually the one I wanted to ask you about, even though we've had, we've had lots of fun detours, which is Penn is one of the schools where some very wealthy alumni have started saying, we want to defund Penn. We don't want to give to Penn. We don't want to give to Wharton. It's business school, et cetera, because of what they see as all this anti-Semitism, leaving aside the charge of anti-Semitism, right or wrong in these cases. How serious is the threat of donors who give money with strings attached or then try to influence Liz McGill, the president, or the board of trustees? How much do you worry about it in poli-sci, and how much should we all worry about it at universities? It's a great question. Liz McGill, I think, threw the academic mission under the bus. I get why she might do it in the same way I ask people to analyze Hamas. She is fighting for her job, and she's described it as a hostile takeover. So she's struggling with this, where she's being called number one anti-Semite. I would have liked to to see her step up and say, this charge is ridiculous. I'm not an anti-Semite. But instead, she's basically run with, let me demonstrate why Penn isn't anti-Semitic, and here are all the things we're going to do. And she just really left faculty high and dry. She shifted course content on some of my colleagues without them knowing. She she made it a rule that Penn students who were studying Arabic and were scheduled to go to the Palestine Rights Festival did not have to go because it was this anti-Semitic conclave. She sold out to some donors. She's closer there. Yes. And then what I discovered, and you probably saw this too in the New York Times writing, up until 10 days ago, I thought this was all about Israel-Palestine. Palestine rights would have died down, save a war broke out. And now it becomes a marker of anti-Semitism before the war, and we're continuing with demonstrations on campus, etc. But I learned this, that folks have been charging Penn and since you work on a Jewish education in the Ivies, you know that this is a charge about all the Ivies, that Jewish enrollments are down as a proportion of enrollments uh, everywhere, if, and has been a complaint in places like Tablet Magazine back in the spring of 2023, when folks were arguing about the Asian American students at Harvard and so forth. So all of a sudden, this window opens up to me, wait a minute, this is a long-term charge that Penn is anti-Semitic because Jewish students are not enrolling in larger numbers. And I've gotten letters explaining this to me that it's a fact. And when I try to ask people, well, let's think about it a little bit more complicatedly because they don't actually collect numbers on Jews, but are white enrollments down and are Jews white in the strange U.S. race binary concept? 
Yes, are international students up? Are, are administrations trying to uh, juggle this crazy idea about diversity, equity, and inclusion and trying to meet all sorts of quotas? Yep. And I have a feeling that would have a lot to do with what folks are seeing. Look, as I've made clear on the podcast you allude to on Gatecrashers about the history of Jews in the Ivy League, all of these factors inevitably come into play. If you're speaking to Liz McGill, what do you tell her right now? I'm telling you, I'm going to see a dean tomorrow. I'm forcing, I'm quickening my retirement. I hope to get out here in May because I don't believe I can teach my subject anymore in a university where this charge is now flying out from every administrator's uh, lips about anti-Semitism. I don't know what that is, but I know that many of the terms that they are now saying is are by definition anti-Semitic are the terms that get debated inside my classroom for years. And I'm frankly, I'm scared of this kind of uh, atmosphere where we're all talking about hate speech and giving ground to folks who don't want to think nuancedly and carefully about these matters. Bob Vitalis of University of Pennsylvania, at least for now, but maybe not as of <laughs> six months from now. May 2024, God willing. All right. Thank you for being on the syllabus. Okay. Take care. Friends, the syllabus is a production of AJU and IHE. Would you please take a moment and subscribe and also give us a rating if you can. It helps people who would enjoy the podcast find the podcast. We welcome email and replies. You can write to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. And I would love your suggestions for guests. Finally, our team includes editor Jacob Kaufman, producer Alyssa Silva, and Sherry Hirely, Tessa Grasso, Amelia Hamill, the whole gang here at AJU. At IHE, Inside Higher Ed, our big thanks go to Doug Letterman. Join us next time on The Syllabus.